0: So glad you could join us this morning at Three Lakes E-Free Church. You'd all make your way in here and stand up and worship with us.
1: be seated. Well, good, morning. good morning. It's a joy to gather with you here this morning as we come together and worship our, our great God and Savior. If you're new or you're visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And we are glad that you are here with us this morning. If you are new or visiting and there's anything you want to communicate with the church, we would like the church to be in contact with you. There's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We'd invite you to to fill that out and drop it in the, the boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place um, tithes and offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Uh, also this morning, is we will be celebrating communion, and along with our regular tithes and offerings on Communion Sunday, we take a special benevolence offering, a special offering focused on meeting needs in our community, and so on your way out, there will be someone at each of the back doors holding an offering plate. That plate will be for the special benevolence offering. Um, your regular tithing offering can go in the boxes. A couple other just announcements to make you aware of. One is that last Sunday following the service we had an encouraging and a helpful meeting regarding the future of small groups here in the church. If you weren't able to make that or if you've had time to think and want to communicate anything about that, there's a card in your bulletin where you can indicate your interest in being part of a group or leading a group or hosting a group. Um, And so I got a lot of good feedback from last Sunday's meeting. Um, it's kind of one more chance to kind of indicate any interest you may have and then Hopefully by next Sunday we'll have some more concrete ideas of what's happening with small groups going forward. But if you want to fill that out, if there's anything there's not space for, if you want to write about, you can write on the back of the card, and it can be dropped in the box is on the back wall as well. A few more quick announcements. So we have Sunday school coming up, and so starting in the fall. So if you have a child who is Sunday school age... Um, There are sign-up sheets downstairs. We'd invite you to sign up, put their names down, just so we have an idea of how many kids will be in each class and where our numbers are at. And then coming up on a couple of Sundays following the service on August 28th, we will have our next congregational meeting. So we'd invite especially members, but anyone who's interested to come and be a part of that meeting as well. As we continue in our time of worship this morning, let's prepare our hearts by going to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this chance to gather together in this place that you've brought each of us here. You've been at work in each of our lives throughout this week and throughout our lives to bring us to this place. And so, whatever work you would do in each of our hearts this morning, pray that our hearts would be receptive to it. Pray that you would be at work to conform us into the image of your Son and to. Spur us to live life that more fully and more perfectly bring you glory in all that we do. Father, we pray for those in our our church family who are hurting, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain or spiritual pain. Pray that you would be with each person who is going through time to struggle, that even in the midst of struggle, they'll be able to see Your goodness and see Your hand alongside them. Father, I pray for us at the church that we would be light in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces that as we gather together here as your people, that it would equip us, it would encourage us so that we can go out from here as your representatives, seeking to advance your kingdom in each of our spheres of influence. So God, as we sing this morning, as we hear your word this morning, that you fix our hearts and our minds on you, that we can glorify you. We can learn from your word. And we can become more like Jesus. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you
0: stand as we continue singing this morning? Praise the Lord. The payment, his life was the cost We stood
1: fully trusting you to use us for your glory in the best way that you see fit. Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're a child of age four through seven, you can you're dismissed to go to children's church downstairs. So in the year 2000, I was like 14, but there was a a study published that showed that people were giving up on the Internet. According to this study, there were 28 million Americans who were, quote, former Internet users. And then they had had Internet for a while and then gotten rid of it, given up on it. And so that study comes out, and it led to a stream of articles like this one the internet may just be a passing fad as millions give it up. Or there is this article in The Guardian, a pretty well respected newspaper, and in it the author writes The internet might end up looking, in hindsight, a lot like CB radio. Initially a cult among specialists, then a sudden skyrocketing surge in popularity, and then, well, not much, really. Mentioning one's email address at the better sort of party, it seems, might one day be as de classe, as loudly informing the assembled gathering of one CB call sign. <laughs> and so, like, internet going the way of CB radio. That was the prediction. And of course, like, in hindsight, these kind of predictions seem ridiculous. Like, like maybe you're sitting there now thinking, like, how could anyone possibly think that? How can anyone possibly think the internet was ever going to go away? Right? But if you find yourself having those thoughts, like you're exhibiting something called hindsight bias. And hindsight bias is this idea that it's a common tendency for people to perceive past events as having been more predictable than they actually were. Like looking back, like in in hindsight, the the ubiquitous pervasiveness of the internet feels inevitable. Right? Of course, was going to be everywhere in 20 years. Right? But in 2000, like, that wasn't obvious. Like, even experts in their field struggled to predict future events. There's this researcher, Philip Tetlock, and he, he conducted a study called the Good Judgment Project, and he followed 300 experts in their field over a 20-year time frame. So he asked them to predict geo, geopolitical events in their field of expertise. Right? So we asked questions like, will the Soviet Union disintegrate before or after 1993? Right? Or not at all. Right? And for each event, the experts were given three possible outcomes and asked to, to ascribe a probability in the form of a percentage to each event. Right? So maybe it's 40% of option A, 20% of option B and 40% option C. Like they're given 100% to allocate however they wanted. And Tetlock found that these experts would have performed better if they had just assigned 33% to every possible outcome. Right? Or as one author put it, the experts struggled performed perform better than dart throwing chimps. <laughs> like, like all that to say, right? Understanding how future events will play out is hard. And oftentimes, like, the future plays out in ways we never could have predicted. And yet we can, look back on how the, we can look back on how things played out, and it seems obvious, right? That of course it must have played out that way. And we can scoff at anyone who predicted that it would turn out differently. And I think we, or at least I, can do the same thing with Jesus' disciples. Like, like I tend to treat them like with a strong hindsight bias. Right? Like, like, How could you not understand, disciples, who Jesus was and what he came to do? It's right? so like in today's passage. Like in today's passage, Jesus is going to tell his disciples exactly right, what's going to happen to him when they get to Jerusalem. Right? He's going to tell them everything. And then Luke's going to tell us the disciples did not understand any of this. And so Easy for me to sit here on this side of history and think, those disciples, like, what morons! Like, how did you not see that coming? But he told you. But when I think that way, I think it's my hindsight bias coming through, and I'm not appreciating just how how radical and unexpected what Jesus did really was. If I try to put myself in the disciple's shoes, if I try to think of what everyone in that culture expected the Messiah to be, right? which was a, a conquering military leader. And I remind myself that the, the disciples were convinced that Jesus was that kind of leader. And I think about how I would have reacted if this man I was convinced was going to be a great military leader suddenly told me something like, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. Like, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Yeah. If I was a disciple, thinking all the things the disciples thought, and I heard Jesus say that to me, like, I probably would have assumed he was speaking in some kind of code. Like, oh, there goes Jesus again. He's always speaking in parables. Right? I don't know what this one means, but certainly it's not what he. Actually, going to do. Like, there's some code here. Like, he, he can't actually be serious. But of course, Jesus was serious. Even though the, the disciples couldn't see it, there were some in Jesus' day who could see the truth of who Jesus was. And in today's passage, we see that ironically, like, one of the people who could see the real Jesus was a blind man. Well, the disciples, even though they had the physical ability to see, were blind to the reality of who Jesus was. And so through this passage, we see that like, spiritual sight is infinitely more valuable than physical vision. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, looking at verses 31 through 43 this morning. If you have a Bible, I like you to turn there, or the verses will be on the screen as well. And as we go through this passage, what I want to do in our time together this morning is look at five things that spiritual sight enables us to do. So with that mind, I want to read the whole passage first, then we'll come back and look at each of the five things individually. Starting in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, we read this. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophet about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. His meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and ordered the man brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So The first thing we see that spiritual sight enabled us to do in this passage, it enabled us to embrace God's call. Specifically, having spiritual sight enabled us to embrace God's call on our lives, even when it seems hard. Like, as with everything in life, Jesus is the perfect example of this. In verses 31 through 33, we see that Jesus is under no delusions about what God's call on his life will mean for him. Again, verses 31 through 33. He took the twelve aside and told them, We are going out to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophet about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. So everything that's about to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem is a rest. Being mocked, his death. All of it, Jesus says, was foretold by the prophets. It was all the plan from the very beginning. It was always God's call on Jesus' life for him to endure all these things. It's not like God was caught off guard when Judas betrayed Jesus and then suddenly had to scramble to come up with a plan B. This was the plan from the beginning. The death of God's son was always the plan. And Jesus embraced that call, even though it was unfathomably difficult. I think one of the reasons the disciples couldn't comprehend what Jesus was saying to them when he explained what was going to happen to them in clear terms, that they couldn't even begin to comprehend that God's plan for his most faithful servant would be anything but easy. Like, of course, like if God, this is God's Messiah, then His plan, God's plan for it, must be easy and smooth and golden, right? and so it makes no sense for the disciples to think that Jesus would go through these unfathomably hard things. Right? Like that's a mistake. I think we're all prone to making, at least I am. Right? Like, I won't probably say this out loud usually, but like, oftentimes in my heart. Right? My default thinking is, the more obedient I am, the easier God's going to make things for me. That's how I think. And yet we see over and over again in the Bible that that God called some of His most faithful servants to incredibly hard lives. Jesus is the prime example of this, of course. But there's also Jeremiah who endured such hardship that he's known as the weeping prophet. Noah was the most faithful man of his generation, and his reward was to watch the world literally destroyed beneath him. David was the best king Israel ever had, and yet he spends large parts of his reign running from his rebellious son who's trying to overthrow him. And there's Paul, who in First Corinthians recounts all that he suffered as he tried to faithfully pursue God's call in his life. Here Paul recounts his suffering. He says this, Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn. Like, like just, you read that list of things that Paul suffered, and you, like, that's one of the most faithful guys in the Bible. Like History recalls that Paul, along with most of the original twelve apostles, and many other early followers of Jesus were ultimately killed for their faith. The point being, like, obedience does not equal ease of life. And yet, like all the people who endured all these things, all the people who died for their faith, Paul, all of them, like, they were willing to embrace the hard call of God for their life. Why? Why? If they had spiritual sight. Paul puts it this way. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. And he says this. Like, remember all that Paul suffered, all that he recounted. He says this. I consider our present sufferings not worth comparing with the glory that, we re, that will be revealed in us. In another place, Paul writes, that is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insult, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because he had spiritual vision, Paul could say, for Christ's sake, I delight in hardship. I delight in persecutions. Likewise, the Apostle Peter, who is no stranger to sufferings himself, he could write this. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed." Like, I don't know about you, but like, I read those kind of passages. And, like, I realize like I' got some growing to do. Like, I think I have spiritual vision, like I've given spiritual sight when Jesus saved me. But I, I read the words of Peter and Paul, and I see how they rejoice in their suffering, and I realize that though I have spiritual vision, like it is not 2020. I'm not, I'm not eager to embrace and rejoice in suffering and hardship like Paul and Peter. The question then becomes, like, how do we get there? How do we get to a mindset like Paul and Peter have when it comes to sufferings? Both Paul and Peter, in their writings, attribute their rejoicing and suffering to two things. The first one is that both Peter and Paul saw their, their hardships and their sufferings as sharing in Christ's suffering. So Paul said it this way We are heirs of God and co heirs with Christ if indeed we share in his sufferings. And Peter says, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So, one of the ways we can grow in our ability to embrace God's hard call in our life is is seeing our hardships as sharing and participating in Christ's own suffering. And we, we remind ourselves of all the hardships, all the trials that Christ endured for us on our behalf. And reminding ourselves of that, then we are then better equipped to face trials and hardships ourselves. The second thing both Peter and Paul do when they face hardships is they, they look forward to future glory. Paul says it this way, I consider our present suffering not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And Peter says, Rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. we, We grow in our ability to embrace God's hard call by looking forward to future glory. Like, I'm, I'm told, though I can't confirm from personal experience, that that childbirth is a quite painful process. I've, what I hear, I can't personally attest to that, but I'll take your word for it. Right? I, and yeah, despite the fact that it's such a painful experience, like many women willingly choose to go through it multiple times. Why? Why? Well, in part because the joy that comes on the other side of that pain is greater than the pain that the process causes. The same thing true of our relationship with God. We can endure hardship and pain now because we trust that our present suffering, the Paul says, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us to us. Here's the question I just invite you to consider in light of this. If there's something that you've felt God prodding you towards, calling you towards, but that you've been hesitant to do, hesitant to embrace, because you feel like it might be hard, and you don't want to deal with the hardship, maybe you, you feel God prodding you to to leave your current job, to go to a job where you can serve Him better, but the idea of leaving a job is daunting or scary. Maybe you feel God prompting you, calling you to to move your family or pursue full-time ministry or consider missions overseas. Maybe you feel God prodding you to, to radically increase your financial giving or to pursue adoption or to step into some hard family situation. But every time you think about doing any of those things, all the challenges, all the hardships you would face kind of creep in and they cause you to ignore the sense of call that you're feeling. And if that's you, if you feel yourself kind of blocking off, ignoring God's call because of the challenges it may present, then I would just urge you to pray. Pray earnestly Ask God to make that call clear. Ask God to help you overcome your hesitations. I just encourage you to reflect, like really reflect on what it, would, what it means to share in the sufferings of Christ. And then to consider how much greater your future glory is than anything you might suffer now. just urge you to embrace God's call on your life, even and especially if it seems like a hard call. The second thing that spiritual sight enables us to do is that it enables us to see the real Jesus. A spiritual vision allows us to see Jesus as He really is, and not as we expect Him to be or want Him to be. As the disciples here, we're unable to do this. They were so locked into their preconceived notion of who Jesus was that even when Jesus told them plainly what he was going to do, they couldn't grasp it. But there was a man in this passage who, who could see the real Jesus. It just so happens that this man was physically blind. So we see it through 34 through 38. The disciples did not understand any of this its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. But, as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it's Interesting, isn't it, that right, he asked the crowd what's happening, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth is going by. But when he goes to cry out, he doesn't cry out and say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that difference, his changing Jesus' title is The key to realizing that this man understood who Jesus was and what he was about. In calling Jesus the son of David, the blind man is acknowledging that he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one of God. In the Old Testament, God had promised that David would one day have a son whose kingdom and throne would endure forever, whose kingdom would never end And this blind man in this passage realizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. Because he realizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise, he cries out to Jesus for mercy. The blind man is able to see the real Jesus. To see Jesus as he really is. While the disciples only see Jesus as they want and expect him to be. Again, we're prone to do the same thing. It's so easy to craft a picture of Jesus that fits in our own image of Him. That's why when you look at all the Renaissance paintings of Jesus, they look a lot more like a European artist than a Middle Eastern carpenter. That's why people from all different political persuasion can claim Jesus for their side. And that's why the health and wealth gospel is so popular. Right? Because of our own materialism, we want a Jesus that lavishes, lavishes us with material blessing. But that's not the way Jesus is revealed. The real Jesus is revealed in this book. Like he, he's shown to us. The real Jesus is laid out here for us. I just encourage you. like Read this. Get your picture of Jesus, not from media, not from your own notions of what you want Jesus to be. Read this and see Jesus as He's revealed to us. In particular, read the Gospel. And as you read, try to see Jesus as He's revealed in the pages. Try, Try to put aside any preconceived notions that you have and let Him reveal Himself to you in His Word. It's one of the reasons we're spending over two years as a church going through this book in this sermon series. We want to see the real Jesus. When we see the real Jesus, when our our spiritual vision improves, one of the things we're better able to do then is to endure rebuke. One of the barriers that many of us have when it comes to sharing our faith or talking about Jesus with others is that we're Fearful that we'll be ridiculed or mocked for our faith. We fear that talking about Jesus will lead to harm, to friendships we may have, or may cause others to judge us or disregard us. But none of those things, none of those fears of rebuke stopped this blind man from calling out to Jesus. In verse 39 we read, those who led the way rebuked him and told them to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the people walking in front of Jesus were rebuking this man, telling him to be quiet. But those rebukes didn't cause this man to cower away in shame. Instead he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And for Many of us, like myself included, like just, just the possibility of rebuke is often enough to cause me to hold my tongue when it comes to Jesus. But certainly for me, like once I've been rebuked, like my tendency will be to really clam up. But we see from this man that when we're convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus really is who He says He is, then it's worth enduring rebuke to call out to Him. So again, I just ask you to consider. Like, how willing are you to endure rebuke for the name of Jesus? If you, like me, find yourself convicted over how easily you, you shut down in the face of rebuke, I'm going to just say, like, the solution is not To try to will yourself to be stronger in the face of rebuke next time. Your self will will never be strong enough. The solution is to look to Jesus, to see him in all his splendor, in all his glory, and to remind yourself that someone as magnificent as Jesus is worth enduring rebuke for. And having that spiritual vision, the ability to see the real Jesus, allows us to endure rebuke. Right? And it also allows us to be healed. But the reason the blind man calls out to Jesus in the first place. Right? The reason the blind man endures that rebuke is that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and at the Messiah, Jesus can heal him of his blindness. Verses 40-42 through 42 we read, Jesus stopped in order the man brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. This man's faith, his spiritual sight, allowed him to be healed. But his faith didn't just allow him to be healed of his physical blindness. That word translated healed in this passage, it's more often translated saved in the Bible. We could translate this, your faith has saved you. It's great and it's wonderful that this man's faith in Jesus let him regain his sight. But the more important thing about this man's faith is that it granted him eternal life. When I, when I read this passage, I can't help but think of Fanny Crosby. She wrote more than 9,000 hymns in her life. The fact that she went blind when she was six weeks old. And she was blinded because she came down with a sickness as a baby. And the family's normal doctor was out of town. So they found another doctor. And this doctor prescribed hot mustard poultices to be applied to her eyes. And only we later found out that this doctor was a fraud, not really a licensed doctor, and that the treatment was a sham and it caused her blindness. And if I were Fanny Crosby, I knew that story of how I went blind. It would be so easy to be bitter. But one time someone was trying to show her sympathy and be sympathetic about her blindness, and she responded by saying this, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind because when I get to heaven, the first faith that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. I read that and I think of this passage and we don't know if this man was born blind or became blind later in life. But we do know that when his sight was regained, the first face he saw was that of his Savior. Right? Sight is all well and good, but only if we use it to look on the right things. There is no greater way to use our sight, use our vision, than to look on Jesus. And each of us who have by faith been healed. been healed healed not just of our physical ailments, but also have had our souls healed of the destruction that sin brings. Each of us who have been healed in the soul. We can look forward to the day when we'll behold Jesus face to face in the new heavens and the new earth. If you're here and you've, you've not trusted Jesus, you've not placed your faith in Jesus, then... Your soul is still broken and needs healing. And I'd invite you to trust Jesus so that your soul can be healed. That you can one day be with Jesus and see Jesus face to face in heaven. And then once we've been healed, that healing enables us to follow Jesus. And the man in this passage. Once he had been healed by Jesus, right? He didn't, he didn't just get healed and then go back to his old way of life, doing whatever he wanted to do. Instead, his healing prompted him to follow after Jesus. Verse 43. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. But the man, after being healed by Jesus... He followed Jesus and he praised God. And his act of praising God caused others to praise God as well. Now that, that verse is such a succinct picture of what the Christian life ought to look like. We're healed by Jesus. We're healed through faith. And in response to that healing, we follow Jesus and we praise God. And our praising God prompts others to praise God as well. So, what the life of a Christian ought to look like. But sometimes it can be easy to want the healing without the following. I want to be healed. I want my spirit, my soul to be healed. I want to get into heaven. But then I want to live the rest of my life following my own desires rather than following Jesus, rather than embracing God's call for my life. It's easy to think that way. But the Bible doesn't have a category for that kind of person. Those who are saved by Jesus in the Bible become followers of Jesus. Those who are saved by Jesus desire to do God's will even when it's hard. Let me just encourage you. If that's you, if you show up, come to church, if you want Jesus to save you, you want to get to heaven, but then you want to go live your life wherever you deem best. I just urge you and encourage you, like repent of that mindset, repent of that lifestyle. Like and ask Jesus to help you grow as a follower of him. Ask Jesus to help you grow in your willingness to go wherever he calls you, do whatever he calls you to do. Yes, it may be maybe hard. We said in the beginning, like many of the early followers of Jesus died for their faith. But they did it joyfully and without regret. They did it by remembering that Jesus suffered for them. And they did it by looking forward to the future glory that awaited them. So as we prepare, we're going to take communion here. And in communion, we have a chance to do the same thing. Communion does two things for us. It reminds us of all that Christ suffered for us. As we take the bread, we're we're reminded that His body was beaten and broken on our behalf. As we take the juice, we're reminded that Jesus' blood was spilled. Jesus' blood poured out because, as the author of Hebrews tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The, The communion It reminds us, it it points us back to all that Christ suffered for us. The communion also points us forward. It reminds us of the future glory that we will share as all those who trust in Jesus. Communion points us forward to the day when all who have trusted Jesus will gather together in the new heavens and the new earth, and together we will partake of a meal. And meal the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in that meal, we're reminded that we are one body. We are the body of Christ. We are united under the headship of Christ. So this picture of unity forever is an important part of communion as well. In 1 Corinthians, we read this. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks our participation in the blood of Christ. It's not the bread that we break our participation in the body of Christ. But there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And right? So the sense of unity, of being united together as we take communion is an important part of communion. So in light of that, we're going to do take communion a little bit differently this morning. Right? So the communion elements are up here on these two Tables. And so the, the bread in these trays, right? Paul talks about them being from one loaf. The, the bread was made technically in two batches, but at the same time. So close. Right? And so it, but it's a picture of, of unity. We're taking the same bread together. And so in a minute, I'm going to invite you all to come forward. And I'm going to invite you to come use the side aisles that you come forward. And if you're sitting in the middle section, you can turn and go back down the middle aisle. If you're on the side aisles, so you can go to the outside if you have room. Otherwise, you kind of turn and go back down the side aisle. If you prefer gluten-free, there are gluten-free elements in the baskets up here. And also, if it's, if it's hard for you to get to the front, or if it's hard for you to get back to your seat carrying a cup of juice... You can just stay in your seat and raise your hand, and we'll have someone bring you the communion elements. Right? And so, I just want to say, as we come forward, like I think it's important that we see us all coming forward to, to picture that unity. And I think eating bread from one source is significant. Right? But we also don't want to be legalistic about it. Right? And so, if you you would prefer gluten free or you need gluten free, or if you need someone to bring the elements to you, like by all means, avail yourself of those options. We're going to pray, and then as the music starts, I'd invite you to come and partake. Oh, you come, take the almond back to your seat, and we'll partake together once everyone has returned to their seat. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to gather, to partake of this meal that reminds us of all that Jesus has done for us. And it pictures for us that we will one day join together as your people united under the headship of Christ, sharing a meal together around your throne. Would we come now? do we delight now that you've done for us? We look forward to the day that we will. Enjoy this meal together in the glorious, perfect new heavens and the new earth. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the gift that is the tangible reminder of all that you did for us, the tangible promise of all that awaits us in the future. Thank you for this, this meal that we partake together as we remind ourselves that we are one body united under the headship of Christ. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread. When He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Perfect. Father, would we remember would we Recall all that Jesus did for us. Not just on Sundays, not just when we come to church, but each moment of each day would the amazing work of Jesus and His sinless life and His death on our behalf and His resurrection. Would it permeate our thoughts day in and day out? Would we constantly remember all that Jesus did for us? Would it constantly and impact how we live our lives in a sinful and hurting and broken world. Would we be witnesses to the amazing grace that's found in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here this morning, would you Go remembering all that Jesus did for you. Would you go delighting in the future that awaits you as a follower of Jesus? And would you go embracing God's call on your life, however hard that may be? You are dismissed.